0: Hey everybody, it's time for the With a Bullet podcast. His name is Matt Golden. My name is Todd Golden. Matt, what's new in your life? I heard you got a new vehicle.
1: I I did. I did get a car tonight. It's a Honda Civic. It's pretty nice. I've only driven it once so far, so still getting used to it. It's a lot bigger than my other car, but still like an average-sized car. I used to have a um,
0: kind of a compact
1: Chevy car. So, um, did you
0: have the? Did you have the dealership pimp your ride?
1: <laughs>
0: no, 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 I didn't. Time to pimp C auto.
1: Yes, yes. I, I, I should have had them do that. But um, the name of the the name of the official name of the color of the car is kind of funny, though. It's modern
0: steel. So. <laughs> like as in like um the movie what was the patrick swayze movie like wasn't there a movie with steel in the name that he was in it was like some shitty like fighting movie or something
1: no no there was a there was a movie called steel with shack in it where he was a superhero
0: oh yes <laughs> winning so uh, well we'll have to next time we're together we'll have to uh, street race okay okay you can do the best drifting right so anyway enough bullshit um this week's countdown is my pick and it's from october 14th 1984 but the uk chart yep and my rationale on this is a lot of people uh, especially people who grew up in the 80s consider 1984 to be sort of the peak of the 80s at least music wise and i'm not going to argue with that i i I agree with that in the sense that 1984 was deep from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other years like, I think that have higher peaks than 84, but 84 was solid throughout. So I'm not going to argue that. But the reason I want to do the UK chart is to see where they were in terms of their music development. So that was so. This is sort of an experiment mm-hmm. And throughout this, uh, because there are quite a few differences in the charts actually from, hot 100 or the top 40 on this week in 1984 here and there so as we go through this we'll determine whether this song should have been a hit here or whether it actually was a hit
1: okay okay
0: that's our that's our project this week yeah you did your homework
1: i i did i did did
0: you (laughs) well i want to know all about number 40 listen to your father by fergal starkey or sharky
1: sharky Um, Fergal Sharky was the lead singer of The Undertones, but uh, this one is quite a bit different from what he was doing with them. He's in full-on 80s pop mode here, and this was a collaboration with the band Madness, and it was written by Chaz Smash from Madness. And he's the guy who sings um, One Step Beyond, Um, well, not really sings, but... Basically, the guy who goes, one step beyond. Yes, yes. And the members of Madness appear as his backing band on the track, and it was released on um, their vanity label, which was called Czar Jazz. And it's kind of in the style of Motown, but it's filtered through, like, typical early 80s production, so it kind of ends up sounding like Phil Collins. And Fergal Sharky does have a really great voice, but it's kind of jarring in this context. Um, But this does have a Goofy 80s video, Um, (laughs) kind of a typical Goofy 80s video. Um, Fergal and his buddies are getting into hijinks in a pool hall, and um, it's wacky. But um, should this have been a hit in the States? Eh, Probably not. I'm guessing.
0: You know what my vanity label would be called? What? Zardoz Records.
1: Zardaz? Would, would you have, like, the the um, floating head with guns flying out of its mouth for the label? Or Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to have that. I mean, either that or, like, Sean Connery in, like, the red diaper.
0: Yeah, or maybe the end where... Um, they all age in the cave
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: and so i can do that, that too there's a lot of options zardoz there's so much to choose from
1: yeah i i actually genuinely like zardoz believe it or not
0: <laughs> well you're you're right there with our father who's a big fan of that movie as well <laughs> i've watched it i i it's i don't know i don't know i haven't seen it in a while so
1: it's it's probably one of the goofiest sci-fi movies ever made, and I'm not sure if it was like intentionally goofy or what. But no, I mean that's the problem with it. I think it was
0: sincere, and it's like over the top. It's like they thought they were really being deep.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Throwing guns out of a disembodied head that can fly. Yep, yep. So it's
1: pretty deep. <laughs> yes, but number thirty-nine for you, we have um, Eugene Wilde with "Gotta Get You Home Tonight."
0: Eugene Wilde, never had a top. He's American, but he never had a top forty hit in America. Yeah, but this is one of the two that he had in the UK. Um, he did have two R&B number ones in America, R&B number ones, uh, including this song. He's sort of in Marvin, like late Marvin Gaye mode here, like Think Sexual Healing. It's kind of a rip off of that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but also mixed that a little bit with Jeffrey Osborne, who was also big as a solo artist at this point so i don't know kind of mediocre frankly uh you know soul which is probably why it wasn't a big hit here in america i can see why it wasn't because it just doesn't register very well right Uh, so i guess that answers my first question should this have been hit in america i say no because it's basically kind of mediocre
1: okay okay
0: sorry eugene Wilde. (laughs) It was a good looking man though
1: i i didn't look at his picture i i did listen to this track though and i kind of agree with what you said there
0: so. yes yeah, it's, it's average at best so yeah hey, hey, next for you a well-known song number 38 cover me by bruce springsteen
1: um this was the second single from born in the usa i covered the first in our previous 1984 episode and um this album kind of established him as a star in the uk Um, He had some success over there before this, but wasn't nearly on the same level as it was here in the States. So um, basically had the same success over there with that album as he did here. But he initially wrote this song for Donna Summer, and I I can almost imagine her doing this, but um, his manager talked him out of, Um, giving it to her and keeping it for himself Um, he gave donna the song protection instead which um, didn't chart but and it's also not really that great but um, this ended up going to the top 10 of the states and top 20 here uh, despite the fact that it didn't have a video which was kind of unthinkable in 1984 and this was the second time that Bruce had a big hit with a song that he was intending on giving to somebody else. Um, obviously, "Hungry Heart" was originally supposed to go to the Ramones. But out of all the out of all the singles on Born in the USA, I probably like this one the best. And should this have been a hit in the U.S., um, it was, and yeah, it should have been. I, I like this one. So here's
0: where you and I drop pistols at dawn because this is my least favorite single from born in the usa really huh yeah i I think it's just mediocre i uh, what were the singles? you got obviously you got dancing in the dark dancing in the dark
1: um born in the usa um glory days and i'm on fire
0: i'm on fire is a great song i didn't really get that one when it was out but i think that's that may actually be the best one to be honest and then but then also we had um the one um I'm Going Down was the last single. Up-
1: oh, yeah, 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 that was. A, yeah, yep.
0: That's that's a great song. I mean, it's just a rocker. But that's probably my favorite up-tempo song of those that were released. So, yeah, I, I don't know. This one doesn't do it for me. See. Sorry.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I actually f- completely forgot about I'm Going Down. That one's pretty good, too.
0: So Yeah, the lyrics are funny. It rocks that that's that's a good song and i'm on fire is a great song it really is Mm -hmm. well and and plus wasn't my hometown too was a single oh
1: yeah 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 you're right yeah so it was almost almost that entire album i mean from the way we're talking about it that's
0: yeah i mean that was one of those albums probably one of the first ones in the 80s where they just released singles off of it for like almost two years like that became a little bit more prominent later on in the 80s where you had bands like Def Leppard mm-hmm. and z Pop squeezing, you know, several years worth out of one album, but... Right. But I could see Donna Summer doing this song. I think it would have been, maybe would have been better, I don't know.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, definitely would have been more disco-y or, like, whatever, like, disco evolved into in 1984.
0: She, I, you know, coincidentally, it seems like I was these by coincidence on xm over the weekend the 80s chart was from this week in 84 i didn't know that when i picked this and donna summer had a song on it hmm. so um so she did fine
1: yeah 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 that's true but number 37 for you we have queen um with hammer to fall
0: yep oh the, the song by the way that donna summer had was the remake of there goes my baby that was what it was. oh
1: okay okay
0: anyway queen i get queen a lot I don't know why. I queen, I get the cure, and uh, it drives me crazy, but I distrust bands. Uh, I, I looked up a video for this, for which, for some reason, I don't really recall getting any airplay at all on MTV back <laughs> in 84. God knows that's some peak MTV viewing on my part, but I distrust bands that have the logo at the beginning of their videos, and that wasn't even very common in MTV before, but Queen plasters their logo, and first scene of the video i'm like uh really
1: but <laughs>
0: um but this song is queen and rock mode which is always their preferred mode as far as i'm concerned um <laughs> the video does feature roger taylor queen's drummer wearing a choose Life shirt so take that lamb <laughs> Who that in the curve on that one yeah it, it, it like most queen songs from the 80s it's it's overproduced But I have to say this is one of their better ones from this period. I mean, it's not under pressure or anything like that. But it does rock, and they don't throw too many stupid little, you know, musical quirks into it like they typically did in that era. Um, So it's just, you know, you can tell that Brian May influences heavy on this, which is always usually when Queen is a little bit better and more straightforward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should this have been a hit in America? I say it should have been. I mean, if they would have been... If they would have released this instead of I Want to Be Free, which is what I think came out after Radio Gaga, if I remember right,
1: Uh
0: Um, they may have had some staying power in 84 because really after Radio Gaga, they went into a pretty big slump in America and really never, ever recovered from it.
1: Yeah, you're right about that.
0: Until Freddie Mercury got near death in the early 90s and then some stuff came back and all that. But Uh uh, I would have liked it if this would have been in heavy rotation at this point in 84. I mean... It's closer to, like, Flash Gordon-style rock, I guess, than um, some of Freddie Mercury's more, you know, annoying detours that he would take in genres.
1: Right. Yeah, it's definitely better than I Want to Break Free.
0: God, that song's terrible. Although it's not as bad as, uh, uh, what is it, Body Language?
1: Yeah, yeah, that one's...
0: Body Language is cringeworthy. That's so bad. (laughs) My son just bought Queen's greatest hits so oh really like the double lp yeah
1: oh okay yeah
0: it's you know it's, it's good yeah yeah anyway next up for you uh number 36 penny lover by lionel richie
1: um this is another big lionel richie ballad it's better than most of his singles from this era like hello or um running in the night or stuck on you or all night long even Um, But for whatever reason, it hasn't really stuck in the public consciousness as much as those songs. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I heard this one on the radio. But um, in the video, which I also don't remember at all, um, Lionel's kind of in like a nightclub slash brothel. And based on the decor and how everybody's dressed, it's probably Prince's brothel. And he gets a letter from a woman named Penny... Presumably used to work there, and he reminisces about being with her and how she ditched him for some um, himbo in a navy uniform. <laughs> but the woman, the woman who plays Penny in the video, also looks quite a bit like his daughter Nicole Richie. And I actually had to look to see if it was actually her mom, but it wasn't. But should this have been in the US, Hit in the U.S. Yeah, it's okay. I mean,
0: it, it was a hit in the. I remember it, it
1: was it was top 10 in the u.s number eight so so yeah it was a hit and it should have been
0: it, oh, so you, okay so you do, your position is it deserves to be a hit
1: yes yes
0: what we're doing with the songs that actually were hits
1: so. right yeah exactly
0: gotcha so yeah lionel was all about the ladies you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, right yeah but number 35 for you, we have Miami sound machine with Dr. Beat. Emergency painting, Dr.
0: Beat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no idea that Miami sound machine actually had hits in the UK before they did here. I had no clue.
1: Yeah. I didn't know that either,
0: but this made it all the way to number six in the UK in 84. And it, I mean, it, Not only did it not chart in the top forty here, it barely cracked like the top, like the dance chart, which normally, you know, it's not pretty much any dance song is going to chart pretty high in the dance chart. But this only barely made the top twenty. This song is from Miami Sound Machine's first English language album, Um, Hmm. but it was their eighth album overall because they had done most of their albums up until all their albums up until that point in Spanish. Um, The video is very break into. Uh, which is a compliment and a criticism all at once. I mean, it's Breaking Two. So, I mean, you know, there's the criticism and also the compliment. And it actually does take place in a hospital. Um, so, think of the hospital scene for Breaking Two where a guy's like on his deathbed and he starts popping and locking, which is awesome. Should <laughs> <laughs> so this have been a hit in America? I mean, this is very much uh, kind of prototypical mid 80s dance music, I mean, I don't even know if you can really ascertain Miami Sound Machine's kind of Cuban roots in this one. I mean, it's not its not uh, Conga, which y- you can, you know, which was a great lead single for them in America, because it really introduced them in the way, you know, people would think of Miami Sound Machine. So think pro forma, mid-80s dance music, but uh, it's, it's not bad, though, actually, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. This is early Miami, well, on our ears, early Miami Sound Machine. So it's before they became the Gloria Estefan Ballad Band. And they did did put out some interesting songs. So uh, I say yes, I think this could have been a hit in America. It should have been a hit in America. (laughs) Yeah,
1: based on what I heard of it, I I think it should have too. Yeah,
0: it it was good. Miami Sound Machine really didn't become cringeworthy really until like very late 80s i mean up until that point they had they, they weren't terrible or anything so right yep
1: anyway number 34 for you is east of eden by big country i i'm skipping this one i was expecting like in a big country part two but this song is pretty boring so um, well, just skipping it
0: <laughs> brian big country reeves um was a better basketball player
1: <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> but um, number thirty three for you we have um, Kim Wilde with the second time.
0: I don't even want to talk about the song. I just want to talk about the video, which is pretty amazing, or at least the first twenty or thirty seconds of it are. So it starts off like with one of the like if you remember the movie Beastmaster, and there's a scene in it where they show how they make the Berserker dudes. Like, they put some sort of acid in his head or something like that, and it drives him insane. And Like, the guys who work for the, like, evil king, you know who I'm talking about?
1: I I know who the evil king is. I I don't remember the berserkers. The
0: the, the berserkers were guys, like, dressed in, like, Judas Priest-like outfits that just...
1: Oh, okay, okay, yeah.
0: So, like, those dudes. So, think those dudes. um, Fighting in, like, a Frankie Goes to Hollywood Two Tribes... Style set against, <laughs> against Kim Wilde, who is dressed in what can only be described as a hot green and blue neon roller derby getup. So they're in the in the Thunderdome, so to speak, getting ready to battle. Meanwhile, she's being cheered on from above the Thunderdome by dancers who just shout, "Go, go, 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 go!" <laughs> While the screen strobe flashes repeatedly over the top. Of the uh, of the Thunderdome itself, um, and frankly, that's really all you need to know about this song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it was UK Euro synth pop, which Kim Wilde—that's basically what she did, right? Uh, should this have been a hit in America? Yeah, that's a bit much, honestly. I mean, some of those UK—you know—I guess you could call this a dance track. You know, some of them were a little bit too much, and it definitely hasn't aged well at all. I mean, this is probably in Rick Springfield "Bop Till You Drop" territory, which also had a bunch of dopey ass sound effects and all that in it. If you remember that song, right? Um, yeah, I'm actually surprised though that this video did get heavy rotation because I think there's also parts of it where Kim Wilde kind of. I mean, the song is about having sex, and Kim Wilde was not unattractive. I mean, she later on had. You know, um, you keep me hanging on as a big hit, mm-hmm. so I'm actually surprised MTV didn't jump on this one, but they didn't, and it didn't deserve to be a hit on the strength of the song. So, okay, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Kim Wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up for you, number 32, Mister Solitaire by Animal Nightlife.
1: Yeah, and they're a relatively obscure sophisti-pop act. Um, they're part of the same scene in London that produced um, Culture Club, Charday, and. Swing Out Sister, and um, if you're familiar with sophistipop, you know kind of like the sound.
0: We'll be be talking about a lot more sophistipop on this chart.
1: Right, but this is jazzy, kind of has like a heavy synth bass to it. Um, The lead singer has like a Johnny Mathis esque voice, and there's like almost some calypso thrown in there too. Um, Almost like 50s pop feel to it. For a while, I thought it might actually be a cover. Um, the melody reminded me a little bit of I Only Have Eyes For You. But um, continuing on the 50s theme, um, the video actually takes place in the 50s. Um, there's a woman who's with like a shady, like low-level British gangster, and she ditches him to have fun with animal nightlife, who are all very clean-cut, and they're wearing... like. Um, impeccable fifties vintage clothes, um, which makes sense because um, that they'd be that stylish because their lead singer went on to be a um, personal stylist and window designer for department stores. So, um, kind of getting his start there. But should this have been a hit in the U.S.? Um, yeah, I, I, I. I guess it could have been a hit but i don't really see how that could have happened i mean it's too british and honestly too gay for like 1984 america <laughs> so. i don't know
0: 1984 america was pretty tolerant of the lgbt community <laughs> what was the height of of sensitivity towards those of the homosexual persuasion
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> I know
0: when I was in school people were so enlightened about it.
1: Oh yeah, I I bet they were just as enlightened as I was when I was in like seventh or eighth grade. Yeah,
0: no doubt. <laughs> I only want my British fifties uh revivals to be sung by Shawadi Wadi.
1: <laughs> well, actually, bleed or not, I have another fifties revival song coming up later.
0: Is it by shawati wadi?
1: No, no, no.
0: Well, then I don't even want to hear it.
1: (laughs) Okay. But number 31 for you, we have Alphaville with Big in Japan.
0: This is my first skip. Should this have been a hit in America? Nah, it's it's nothing special, to be perfectly honest.
1: Okay, okay.
0: That leads us to number 30 for you, Too Late for Goodbyes by Julian Lennon.
1: I'm skipping this because I had this on our 1985 show. I mean, it was released as a single later um, in the U.S., but um, obviously this was a hit in the U.S., and it should have been one. So Fair
0: <laughs> enough. But I do think this leads us to your uh, long-distance dedication.
1: You're correct about that. And hold on a second here. Well, this week, since we're in the U.K., we're going to take a little detour across the English Channel. Uh, They didn't have the channel in 1984, so I'm assuming I'm hopping on a ferry or whatever. But I'm going to bring my bike with me because I'm going with number 57, um, Tour de France by Kraftwerk, And this was the band's third in a series of transportation songs dating back to Autobahn, which was obviously about cars and um, driving on the Autobahn. The second, um, Trans Europe Express, dealt with train travel and here they're de- dealing with the band's favorite mode of transportation, cycling. Uh, the members of Kraftwerk got really obsessed with cycling in the late 70s, which is sort of odd because technology was such a big part of Kraftwerk's sound. It doesn't really make sense that they would uh, be obsessed with something so low tech, but it makes sense in a way when you figure out in the whole man-machine element, because... Um, how close are you going to get to a man machine than a guy on a bike? But like Autobahn and Trans Europe Express, they took pains to make the song sound as much as possible as like you were using that form of transportation. Um, you have like the riders panning, the pedals going, um, the sound of the chain, the gears shifting. It feels like you're in the middle of the pack on um, the Champs-Élysées during the Tour de France, and Uh, Ralph Hooter from Craftwork had this to say about it. We know that from cyclists, when they listen to our music, they understand. They listen and they understand how the music's composed. It's important when you move with your bicycle to listen to the environment, the surroundings, the wind, and your own breath. At least that's the way we see this. And it was... I mean, obviously since it's Tour de France themed, it was used for um, the coverage in British TV of Tour de France and it's pretty good sports theme music. Um, in the US, they've actually opted for a John Tesh song. So,
0: score <laughs> one for the UK.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this was also a big breakdancing track. Um, Turbo and Ozone threw down to this song in the movie Breakin'. Um, but um, Kraftwerk wouldn't let them put it on the soundtrack, so um, there's a cover on there which was retitled Ten Speed. So
0: I don't know if that's a good or a bad move by Kraftwerk.
1: <laughs> I know, I know.
0: They probably would have gotten quite a bit more exposure if they would have been on that soundtrack. On the other hand, they also then would have been associated with the movie Breaking, which would not have been so hot. But
1: <laughs> That is true. But for the record, the 1984 Tour de France was won by uh, the Frenchman Lauren Fignon for the Renault-Alf team on a jeton bike uh, with a winning time of 112 hours, 3 minutes, and 40 seconds. Um, His teammate Greg LeMond finished third, which at the time was the highest finish ever for an American, and um, LeMond ended up winning the Tour de France a couple times in the late 80s. But... um, could this have been a hit in the U.S.? I mean, Autobahn was a hit in the U.S., and um, this is kind of like in the same element. So, yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: I think Kraftwerk actually recorded this because they were just mad crazy about doping.
1: <laughs> that that could have been true, possibly.
0: But. It possibly wasn't part of the game in the 80s, cycling, which I highly doubt. I'm sure it was absolutely part of the game but right Greg lamont was cool that's one cyclist i could get behind
1: yeah yeah definitely i mean definitely cooler than like um well lance armstrong and like whatever that one guy who just like was like so obvious that he was doping that came after lance armstrong
0: yeah i didn't like lance armstrong even when everybody liked him i could tell there was something about him i was like this guy he's he's shady yeah 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 we we had a cycling video game and it could conceivably be the most boring video game i've ever played
1: <laughs> where you just how, how would you do like the peddling were you just like pushing I don't, I don't, buttons I don't, I don't even
0: know if that's what it was i mean it was like an early pc game that we had i think we may have gotten it for the kids maybe and it was just it, it wasn't good
1: <laughs> see yeah I, I couldn't imagine that would translate very well to video game. Like
0: you, had to, you had to get into the Peloton correctly and all that, you know, stuff, so. Hmm. Yeah. Huh.
1: Let's see, but anyway, um, moving on to number 29 for you, we have Stephanie Mills with the Medicine Song.
0: This would be my second skip. Um, should this have been a hit in America? Nope, because it's just pro forma electro soul.
1: Okay, okay.
0: It's not that good. Which leads us to number 28, A Letter to You by Shakin' Stevens.
1: Well, I kind of alluded to this earlier because this is a 50s revival track. And Shaken Stevens was the UK's best-selling singles artist of the 80s. Not Michael Jackson, not Prince, not Duran Duran, not Madonna. Shaken Stevens. Um, a rockabilly revivalist from Wales. So go figure on that. And he had 28... Um, top 40 singles in the 80s, 15 of which went to the top 10, and four number one hits. And in that same same time period, he had one Hot 100 single in the U.S., which wasn't this one. But uh, this song was written by Dennis Lind, who um, wrote Burn in Love for Elvis. And it basically sounds like what would have happened if Elvis had survived into the 80s and put out, like, an underwhelming comeback single in 1984. And, I mean, it has really bad 80s production, a lot of 80s cliches on this. Um, the canned horns, like, the synth ha- hand claps in it. Um, it's, it's just bad. And, um, actually... Um, before I bring up the question if if this should have been a hit in the US, it was a hit in the US on the country charts but not by Shaken Stevens um, Eddie Raven who we had in our 1981 country episode uh, put out his own version in 1989 and it was almost identical and it went to number one on the country charts
0: Could you Could you line dance to it?
1: You definitely could Um, line dance to this one.
0: There you go. That was big in 1989. Right, yeah, exactly.
1: It was a hit on the country charts, but it definitely should not have been a hit anywhere in the U.S. It's bad.
0: now Now that you mentioned Elvis, now I'm picturing Elvis in every pop culture moment, like, after he died, like, in music. Like, I'm picturing Elvis doing We Are The World. Yeah. It's a live aid. I'm trying to picture Elvis doing Woodstock '94. Uh, I don't know. I mean, some of those things probably would have worked. Some of them would have been horrible. He probably would have done. Uh, see, he never stopped touring, really. So I don't know that he'd ever would have had a comeback tour. Um, but there would have been some. Uh, there would have been another. If he would have lived, there would have been another critical reappraisal of Elvis. Like, there would have been probably another comeback at some point.
1: Right. I'm I'm thinking, like, you know how in, like, the 90s, how, like, Tony Bennett and, like, Tom Jones came back briefly? I'm thinking it would be something similar to that if he did have a comeback.
0: Bigger than those guys. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what form it would have taken. I I wish, what form I, I hope it would have taken is that he would have gone into some crazy genre exercises, like... What if he did his own version of like Neil Young's trans album or something? That would have been funny. I mean, it
1: would have been interesting anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. I don't think Colonel Parker would have let him do that. More likely, he probably would have done urban cowboy country. That might have been his avenue to another comeback, actually.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, he was on the country charts in that period. So, anyway, but. Right. That has nothing to do with. Um, Shaken Stevens Yeah
1: Right But Number 27 for you We have um, David Bowie With Blue Jean
0: I've always liked this song Um, But it seems to be Panned sort of By association Because the album It came from Tonight Was not a critical success It was considered to be Really Derivative of Let's Dance Which was the Big hit album That came out Before this Um, It is accused of being Formulaic which I suppose it sort of is, but the formula itself I think is solid. I mean, plus I do like the guitars and the horns in this video. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it like rocks. Cause it's not that kind of song, but it does have that kind of typical eighties jangle guitar in parts of it. I mean, it's nothing like Bowie's glamour or anything like that, but it's, it's not like unappealing. Um, the video features David Boyd playing multiple parts, but in the one that gets uh, the, the one part that gets the primary camera time, it looks like Rudolph Valentino after he got stuck in a sandstorm in the Sahara or something like that. It's because of his, he's like almost like painted in sepia tone with his weird shadows on his face. I mean, he doesn't literally have sand on him, but, mm-hmm. uh, but that brings us to the wikipedia fun fact of the week
1: okay okay
0: sponsored by stark terror i'm just gonna quote this quote blue jean was launched with a 21 minute short film jazzing for blue jean directed by julian temple oh stark terror <laughs> julian temple you want to talk about a director who's dated these days um seemed like he was glommed onto everything that was trendy in the 80s, that's no longer trendy. So,
1: Right, yeah, exactly. And, then,
0: and the video was just a shorter version of the Jazz and Blue Jean long form video, which is how they launched it um, on MTV. And I don't remember having any interest in watching that. So, <laughs> um, did this deserve to be a hit in America unequivocally? I like this song.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good.
0: That brings us to, to number 26, Modern Girl by Meatloaf.
1: Uh, this is a skiff um it wasn't a hit in the US and it shouldn't have been it sounds like every other meat loaf song but it's is, it's not as good is as he and
0: Jim's diamond mode
1: i I don't know I mean it sounds a lot like the bad out of hell stuff like if it was done in the 80s I don't know if they were working together at this point because they did like split apart at some point in the 80s I don't know if they were like, Together at this point, so
0: meatloaf, meatloaf, double double beat loaf. I hate meatloaf e-
1: exactly. Exactly, <laughs>
0: that's the second time I've used that this week. We were eating dinner the other day, and I, we weren't eating meatloaf, but we were eating a meat something. I don't even remember what it was. And I just blurted that out to my kids, they're like, What the hell are you talking about? I was like, It's from a Christmas story. Have, have they seen Christmas
1: Story? Oh, or... yeah. So they, like, in New York, yeah. <laughs> so, whatever. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, number 25 for you, we have um, Spandau Ballet with Highly Strung.
0: Hey, it's the guys who sang True. Yes. That was one of only three top 40 hits that Spandau Ballet had in America. And the only one really anybody remembers. Um However, they had 17 top 40 hits in the UK. So to hear Spandau Ballet in, I, I guess you could call this up-tempo rock mode, um, is unexpected to my yank ears. Um, and when I say it's up-tempo rock, it's more pop at the same time. Like It's like fast pop, I guess is the best way I can describe it. Um, there's also some Chardonnay touches in this, um, but also some direct... Like if you combine Chardonnay and Duran Duran, like a good like an uptempo Duran Duran song, I think that's the territory we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know though. I kind of dug this. This was pretty good, actually. Um, good eighties pop and Spandau Ballet were huge, and absolutely no shilling was spared on this video. <laughs> they it off to Hong Kong, and it looks sort of like like a Bond film, like they're doing a sequel to. Uh, the man with the golden gun, which took place partly in Hong Kong, <laughs> um, it's—I mean—it's almost certainly better than *A View to a Kill*, was, which came out, you know, within a year after this. So, right? Did this been a hit in America? Yeah, definitely. Good. Uh, this is a good song. <laughs> actually, it actually made me kind of explore Spandau Ballet a little bit more. Actually, to be honest, it's huh. so pretty good. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. It comes with the uh, seal My seal of approval. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Okay. When I used to post on Twitter, like with Means United did something good, I'd literally post a seal, and it said seal of
1: approval. Oh, okay, okay.
0: Cool. <laughs> uh, anyway, next up for you, number 24 is Agadu uh, by Black Lace.
1: Uh, Black Lace were a novelty band, and to give you an idea of the repertoire, um, here's a list of some of the songs that they've covered and released as singles over the years. Um, the Birds Dance, a.k.a. the Chicken Dance, uh, the Hokey Pokey, Cotton Eye Joe, um, the Electric Slide, and the Macarena. Basically every dopey wedding reception staple. And this song was also a cover. Um, the first version was recorded in French um, back in 1970 by uh, Michelle Dallencray and Maya Semille. And that song ended up being incorporated into nighttime entertainment at Club Med Resorts. And eventually somebody in Darby, um, probably somebody who went to Club Med, decided to play at their club, and they would get their whole staff up there, and they did a dopey dance to that, and Black Lace just happened to be playing at this club at some point, and Saw this and decided to see, steal the song and the dance for themselves. Um, the rest is novelty history, and the dance is barely a dance. It's just mainly pointing, and um, the song makes a lot of references to Hawaii, like hula, uh, pineapples, ukuleles, Waikiki. But the music's kind of like more Caribbean. It's like calypso and it has like fake sense steel drums and everything so it doesn't really match up but um this i mean it was a huge hit in the UK it made it up to number 2 and they re-record this practically every year too i mean if you're a novelty band and you have a huge hit why not um they did a dirty version called have a screw And in 2016, their version featured Jeremy Corbin in the video, and he does the Agadoo dance in it. And these guys were popular enough where they're actually spoofed by Spitting Image um, in the mid-80s. And Spitting Image released a single um, in the style of Black Lace, which was called the Chicken Dance, which has nothing to do with the actual chicken dance. And it actually went to number one, believe it or not. And... In the top of the pop performance, um, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher are playing um, drums and keyboards. It's wacky, but. Hilarious. Yes, and it's also frequently been used as a football chant. And here's an example this one's about Christian Eriksen. Um, Eric Sen, 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 He's our number 23 Eric Sensen Sen, Sen, He was bought by AVB To the left, to the right He's our midfield dynamite When he plays in blue and white He makes Ozio look like shite So, yeah Stupid ass Spurs fans Yes, and it, it was voted the worst song of all time By Q Magazine <laughs> <laughs> But should this have been a hit in the U.S.? Yes and no. It's it, it's a no because it's a terrible song. But it would have been hilarious if it actually did make the charts here. So.
0: It's no curly shuffle.
1: No, no, it's not. No, no. It's
0: no, it's no rap and Rodney. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but it's no, it's no uh, Dragnet rap. Oh,
1: definitely, definitely not. The Dragnet ramp is awesome.
0: Yes. yes. Awesome, yes.
1: People against goodness and normalcy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, uh, Number 23 for you, we have Ultravox with Love's Great Adventure.
0: This is a skip. Uh, should this have been a hit in America? No, it's mediocre.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Next up for you, you seem to be getting the more American hits than I have. Number 22, I Feel For You by Shaka Khan. Shaka,
1: Sha- Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka. Shaka Khan.
0: Shaka
1: Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Shaka Khan. <laughs> um, technically, this is the second time that I've had this song, but not this version. Um, the first time was on one of our album's episodes. I had Prince's self-titled album, which includes his original version of this song, but this the definitive version of that track. I was actually surprised to find out that this wasn't the first um, cover by a name act of this song. Um, The Pointer Sisters and uh, Rebe Jackson took their stabs at this before uh, Shaka Khan did. And um, neither of those versions were released as singles and they're both essentially ah, essentially carbon copies of Prince's original but Shaka and her producers decided to shake things up a little bit. Um, they invited Melly Mel into to do the mo- memorable opening rap. And um, part of that was a mistake. Um, he didn't actually repeat Shaka Khan. Um, there was a glitch, and it just ended up on the tape like that. But they liked it, so they kept it. And um, they also brought in Stevie Wonder, and he actually makes... Um, appearances on this first in the present day on harmonica and second as a sample of fingertips um, which we covered in our 63 episode but shaka khan kind of made this song her own and improved it and i mainly think of it as just a shaka khan song i don't know about you
0: <clears throat> she kind of stole it much of the way that aretha franklin stole respect from otis redding
1: yeah definitely definitely but um, the video for this, since we mentioned Breakin' before, um, Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp from Breakin' are in the video, and they're doing popping and locking, and it, they're on like what's supposed to be like a playground basketball court, and there's also a DJ scratching, and even though there isn't like any actual scratching in the song, but that video was the first place I ever remember anybody, seeing anybody scratch a record. So... It was kind of my introduction to hip-hop culture i guess but this was her biggest hit as a solo artist and it actually matched the position chart position of rufus's tell me something good in the u.s um they both made it to number three but it was slightly bigger in the uk it went to number one here for three weeks but should this have been a hit in the states well it was and yeah yeah definitely
0: so, yep, no question. Right, um, we really well and truly were in the era of turbo and ozone. It was their world, and we were just living it in it.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: what a glorious time to be alive. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> but number twenty-one for you, we have Adam Ant with Apollo Nine.
0: And thus began Adam Ant's era to attempt to create a new genre called rockers in space.
1: <laughs>
0: um, and indeed, the video is definitely making that effort. How can it not? Benny Hill, dressed as an American hillbilly, counting down Adam Ant's launch to the space. And then, but then they only, or at least he gets to five. And that's when Adam Ant takes over. And starts Ant, Adam Anting it up. Um, <laughs> Adam Ant is decked out. Alternately, in a NASA shirt and also a ridiculous silver uh, space suit, which <laughs> um, I don't know, defies description. Um, despite the ridiculousness of it, um, this is actually decent Adam Ant style music. Um, it's no strip, which is my favorite Adam Ant song, which a lot of people mm-hmm. use as first, but it's my favorite. Um, but I kind of dug this, to be honest. I mean, This is music that definitely only could have been made in the 80s. I mean, I don't know any other year. I mean, really only this specific period of the 80s. I mean, this is as 84 wacko as it gets. Right. Um, In a way, this was like the fifth element of music, like 10 10 years or so before that movie actually came out. Like, think of that sensibility of just being in your face and being just crazy wacky. And that's where we're at here with Adam So... Hmm. Um, should this have been a hit in America? definitely, but I could see why it wasn't I mean this was like I mean this was as UK dance pop crazy shit in your face as it could possibly be and so you know the conservative audiences of 1984 America definitely would have been like what? yeah, yeah. yeah. but it should have been it's actually not a bad once you get past all the nutto stuff at the beginning it's actually pretty good Adamant himself actually was pretty good, really. I mean, yeah, he did have a sort of unique niche within kind of the U.K., the 80s British invasion, I guess, so, um, you know, but this didn't go over here, and, um, you know, his career slowly declined through the rest of the 80s, unfortunately, so.
1: Right, yep.
0: That leads us to my long-distance dedication.
1: That's right.
0: I- I'm going to tell you why I wish you had stolen mine. um, at the end of this, but I'm going to go with uh, "Talking in Your Sleep" by Bucks Fizz. Okay, at number 73, and it's kind of jarring when you hear a remake of a song you never knew that the remake existed in the first place. So, yes, this is a remake of the Romantics' "Talking in Your Sleep." Which nice. Really I've been covered, um, and that also goes for videos. So better or worse, most of the imagery that people our age, Generation X, have about our quote-unquote own songs is really tied up to the videos we saw. I mean, when you think of... What's the first thing you think of when you think of the Romantics fucking in your sleep video?
1: Oh, god. I I always confuse this with, like, the tube She's a Beauty video.
0: Well, Well, that's fine, because basically the Romantics video had a bunch of models sleeping. Okay kind of walking around some of them are literally sleeping in bed and then some of them are like sleep sort of simulating sleepwalking and the romantics in their leather uniforms or whatever they wore are sort of walking around them and whispering in their ear and shit so that's the talking in your sleep video that most people who remember it would picture that image in their head with that song so when you watch the bucks fizz version of it um It's weird because you got like there's the shirt, like the lead singer of Bucks Fizz is just standing shirtless in an apartment window (laughs) and drinking milk at night, and there's his neighbor in the next apartment over who's can't sleep. It's the opposite of the other video, Um, and then there's some sleepwalking on the roof. And I'm like, what the fuck, how dare they sully the romantics vision of this song? So, um, I suppose I'm dedicating this to. Weird perception of how you see things, because I mean, you know, we have a definite picture of what that song should be, Mm -hmm. and yet that song was not a big hit in England. So this was a bigger hit, I think. So that's probably what their vision of this song is: is the Bucks Fizz version. (laughs) So it's kind of fun how that works out. But Bucks Fizz never made it in America, mainly because they're wildly mediocre Eurovision alums.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: It sold over fifty million. Records worldwide. Jeez. Um, So there's no accounting to taste. So I get what I actually wrote down was this was dedicated to remakes, never heard, and the romantics. That's what I actually wrote down. (laughs) Okay. But what my backup would have been had you taken in the unlikely chance you took this song, (laughs) it would have just been this. I want to rock.
1: Oh okay, I, I that was actually a possibility for b
0: <laughs> So that was drawn out. You know, this actually, that quote is not from the "I Want to Rock" video. It's from the "We're Not Going to Take It" video.
1: Yes, yeah. The "I
0: Want to Rock" video has like the the heavyweight uh, hood who he picks up by his ear. Uh-huh. This would have gone a lot better with that. I want to rock. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, um, so that's my dedication for a week. That leads us to, for you, number 20, "Careless Whisper by George Michael.
1: I am skipping this one because I've also had this one before in our 85. It wasn't on the chart, but it was my long-distance dedication that week. Wow. So, Yes
0: how serendipitous
1: yes <laughs> but number 19 for you is chardet was smooth operator
0: this song was written when chardet adieu which is her full name was in the group pride um the co-writer ray st john was also in pride but not in chardet so a little bit of host band communication kind of adherence i guess if you want to call it that um, this came out in the UK. We, I guess we're getting some of these songs well before it was released in the US. We've run into this with a couple of years. Um, so this was more of a hit, like in the late '84, early '85 in the US. Um, and this may be the magnum opus of sophistipop, if you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Like if you yeah. think of one song, I mean, sophistipop actually was pretty diverse because you had kind of synthesizer-based sophistipop you had kind of like Swing Out Sister, like retro Sophistapop. Um, you had jazz pop. You had groups like the Blow Monkeys and all that, that, you know, delved into that mode. Um, and then you have this, which is more like almost like Bossa Nova Sophistapop. Um, so it works that way, but it also works as a quiet storm soul song too. Um, and I would have known nothing of any of those genres when this was released in 84. So you know, I would have known sort of, this was like probably the first cool loungy song that I would have thought was cool. Mm-hmm. If you would have played a real lounge song in 1984, i have been like, what the hell is this? But um, this probably opened up quite a few people's ears to some different music, and not just people our age, people, you know, of our dad's generation as well. So even then, you know, even though I wouldn't have admitted it was like a, a cool song, you know, i had that sense back in 84 85 that this was something, you know, to pay attention to and it was pretty cool. So, right. Uh, did it deserve to be a hit in America? Of course. You know, definitely deserved to be a hit.
1: Oh, yeah, obviously. Yep.
0: So, yeah, give it up to Chardonnay. Yeah. And of course, a lot of people made fun of her name. Some people made fun of her look. I sort of remember Persis Kambata comparisons and that kind of shit. But,
1: oh, okay, okay.
0: <laughs> you know but that, that was all dumb i mean the music i think most people really like the music as evidenced by the fact that um you know sweetest taboo was also a hit which i think that's the Chardé song that i had previous to this
1: i i think i had that one actually
0: whatever somebody <laughs> had it
1: so. y- yeah yeah
0: this is uh it, it's the cool song very cool Even it is cool. basically talking about a smooth criminal really is what it's about so
1: Right, yep.
0: Anyway, um, number 18 for you is Love Kills by Freddie Mercury.
1: This was Freddie's first solo single, and if you believe the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, um, this was the moment that almost broke Queen apart. Um, It's a collaboration with Giorgio Moroder, and it was used for um, the soundtrack of Moroder's restoration of the 1927 silent film um, metropolis and the video is just clips of the restoration and that version was slagged by film critics because um Roeder just opted to go with a contemporary pop soundtrack instead of like trying to produce something that was similar to what they used in 1927 when it was first released but it's very synth heavy which is to be expected from rotor And it's honestly not that different from the stuff that Queen was putting out around the same time period. It's like a less catchy version of Radio Gaga. Um, It was never performed by Freddie Mercury or Queen in concert. And um, it was actually nominated for a Golden Raspberry for Worst Original Song. But it lost to Drinkenstein from Rhinestone. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> but, but be referenced today,
1: right? But um, should this have been a hit in the states? No, definitely not. But it did make it like on the lower half of the Hot One Hundred. It made it to number sixty nine in the U.S. I,
0: I think TCM should do a film festival of all the various versions of Metropolis, including the Moroder version, because I think it would be interesting. I don't. It wouldn't be anywhere as near as good as the original. And now they've they basically restored the original, right? Um, yeah, you could definitely tell because the restored scenes are you know pretty scratched up. But uh, I think that would be interesting. I'd like to see the Moroto version. I'm I'm sure I did see it at least parts of it back in the day. But I think that'd be interesting.
1: Right. I, I've never seen the Moroto version. I've seen the like the most recent restoration. Whenever it was on like TCM or whatever. Yeah, I like the
0: It's a good movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. At number 17 here, we have Sister Sledge with Lost in Music 1984.
0: Yeah, it's the theme song of the 1984 Pirates.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> like, we are a family. And a lot of people don't know Sister Sledge, every year since 1979, has come out with a new song for the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> in 1981, it was... We're gonna buy cocaine from the pirate parent.
1: It might have been the same song this '84.
0: Uh, might have been. Did you know that that the pirate parent actually was like the dealer for the pirates?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did know that
0: their, their cocaine thing. That's awesome. <laughs> anyway, um, it actually was not the theme song of the '84 Pirates. Uh, this was originally released during Sister. Actually, it was originally from 1979. It was from their heyday. Um, and was a hit here then, actually. This became a hit again in the UK due to a Nile Rodgers remix. Uh, he did co-write this song along with Bernard Edwards' Two-Thirds of Cheek. Um, and this song kind of points out to me what how serious the disco backlash was here. I mean, Sister Sledge really didn't have much of a career after 1980 or so uh, because of that backlash. It never really occurred to the same extent in the UK, the disco backlash, as it did here. So some of the disco artists probably had a little bit more of a shelf life in the UK than they did uh, here in America, for better or worse. So having said that, should this have been a hit in America? No, it's mediocre. I mean, think of any disco song from the late 70s and add some 80s synth to it, and that's basically what this is.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Anyway, next up for you, number 16, If It Happens Again by UB40.
1: This is a skip. Um, It's not a cover for once for them. Um, But it's not really that memorable so I'm just skipping it.
0: They should have been called (laughs) Yelp40.
1: Yes, yes. (laughs) But um, number 15 for you we have The Stranglers with Skin Deep.
0: Well, I had The Stranglers before they were on the 1977 UK countdown that we did and we're a really long ways away from what they were putting out in 77 to 84 Um, much like you had earlier in the chart with uh, with the the undertones lead singer I mean back in 77 the stranglers they were snarling out punk songs uh, like the song I had which was uh, uh, something better change which is a great song here they're in synth pop with guitars definitely behind in priority. Um, this is definitely more of a synth-pop song. There is some guitar in it, but uh, you know the synthesizers have taken over the Strangler sound. And Strangler's had longevity. I mean, uh, and they adjusted for the times. Uh, they ultimately had 23 top 40 singles in the UK. This song is described, or I saw it described as shimmering, and that is apt because of the way the synthesizers uh, sound. They have that that's a good word, describe it shimmering sound that some synth songs would have had in this period. Uh, Founding member Dave Greenfield, who pioneered their synth new wave era, actually recently died of COVID-19 back in uh, May. So Hmm. should this have been a hit in America? Maybe. I mean, it's kind of weird how our UK-based new wave was sort of cherry-picked. I mean, if this had been picked instead of Um, a different uk song that did make it over here um i don't think we ever would have known the difference so right Um, you know but the stranglers definitely had a lot of genre switches and i mean if you would have told me that this song was the same group that did something better change I i never would have believed it but of course they weren't the only ones right and i have another artist later who went down this road same road had a genre switch so
1: See, and I, I knew this one because it was in a Beavis and Butthead episode. So, it was. yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't
0: remember that. Right. Anyway, next up for you uh, little known song, number 14, Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution.
1: Uh, this, is without a question, the best song on this entire chart.
0: Um, mm-hmm. I don't know about that.
1: <laughs> okay, okay disagreement there but um obviously this is the title track from the movie and the album purple rain and everybody knows that prince's signature color was purple but what is purple rain well according to prince when there's blood in the squat uh, when there's blood in the sky red and blue equal purple purple rain pertains to the end of the world and being with one you love and letting your faith god fate slash god guide you through the purple rain. So, um, yeah. So it's about blood in the sky. (laughs) um, This song was supposed to be a collaboration between Prince and Stevie Nicks. Um, Prince wrote the music, and it was originally almost a country ballad, and it was as long as this. It was about 10 minutes long, and Stevie was supposed to come up with the lyrics, Um, but after she heard what, what Prince came up with um, she passed because she was intimidated Um, she couldn't come up with anything as good as that so prince ended up keeping it for himself obviously and he ended up fleshing it out in rehearsals with the revolution and it shifted from being a country song to um the kind of soulful power ballad that we know today and it was recorded live at first avenue in minneapolis but it was a different live recording than the one in the movie and at the same show um they also recorded i would die for you and baby i'm a star which appeared on that album and it was wendy Melvoin's debut as the guitarist of the revolution but the final ver- version was overdubbed a little bit and one verse of it was cut out um just to i mean just for length considerations mainly but um It's, I mean, obviously one of Prince's best-known songs. I mean, you saw one of the most memorable performances of this in person. I
0: did.
1: At um, Super Bowl um, 41. while He he played this while it was raining. And um, it was also the very last song that Prince performed live uh, before he died, like maybe a week before. So um it's pretty fitting that that was the very last song and um obviously this was a big hit in the u.s it was kept off of the top of the charts by um wake me up before you go go um kept it off the top there and um it's actually re-entered the british charts after he died and actually did better like then than it did in 1984 so I mean, obviously a great song, so... So
0: so, what you're saying is, is that when I was in Miami watching this live, I was getting bled on? That's what you're saying?
1: Well, he's saying that the blood's going to happen at the end of the world.
0: Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I don't remember much about Circle 41, um, apart from Prince's performance, looking back on it, I mean... Yeah, I can remember a few individual things that happened in the game, and I definitely remember the experience of being down there, but the actual game itself, apart from trying to keep my equipment protected from the rain, uh, because it was raining pretty heavy in the first half of that game, um, you know, Prince comes on, and I think he did Let's Go Crazy first, if I remember right. Then he did a Foo Fighters cover, and he did something else. And that was all really cool, but that really didn't become transcendent until he did. Purple rain and even I, even in the moment, I'm like, "Holy shit, it's raining!" And I'm hearing purple rain. And then the performance itself was so good. I mean, the guitar and all that—that that was that's definitely the best performance, live performance I've ever seen, without a doubt. And it, it helps that it's famous. But even if it wasn't, that was uh, that was pretty mind blowing. So,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. We're,
0: we're very lucky to be there to see that. That was uh, cool. And he also played. Uh, What a lot of people don't know, although the video uh, footage of it is out there, he did a quote-unquote press conference uh, during Super Bowl week. And I'm in the Super Bowl media center, and they're like, they announced Prince is going to be doing a press conference in 20 minutes. And I'm like, well, how the hell many times am I going to get a chance to attend something like that? Right. You know, it's going to be an actual press conference. And so if you're ever... It's hard to explain to people who, ever, who aren't there, but the Super Bowl Media Center really is a bizarre place. I mean, you got all kinds of people walking around, mostly former NFL players, but uh, which alone is amazing because there's like so many of them. But you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to go see Prince. You know, it's like routine by that point in the week. So we walk in there, and keep in mind this was in 2007, uh, early part of 2007. And it's not like Prince was, you know, it had been a while since he had been, you know, as popular as he was at this point. And so it was intended well, but not as well as it could have been. So I'm literally standing right there, and it's pretty clear he's going to play a song because he's got a band up there. Mm -hmm. And so he goes, I'd like to take some questions. And then he gives the press like two seconds. He goes, okay, no questions. Then he kicks into whatever. It was (laughs) like a 50s revival song, but... So I was literally standing like ten feet away from Prince when he did that. <laughs> so I actually saw him twice that week. He did that song. He did, I think he did like maybe five or six minutes of performance, and then he just walked off. So <laughs> very Prince of him to do that. So it was yeah, pretty,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: One of those experiences, you know, that's unusual, I guess. So
1: right. See, but number 13 for you, we have U2 with uh, Pride in the Name of Love.
0: Yeah, because Purple Rain can't be the best song on this chart because this is the best song on this chart.
1: It's pretty good. I wouldn't say it is like in the same league as Purple Rain, though.
0: You are high because this is one of my favorite songs from the 80s period and easily my favorite U2 song by several measures. Um, I was 13 when this came out and everything about it to my 13-year-old mind screamed urgency, from Bono singing to especially, you know, the Edges staccato guitar attack that he has in it. I'm 49 now, and it still screams urgency. I mean, it has the same effect on me when I hear it now than that it did then. And it has a grandeur to it that, while still managing to rock, um, and, and I definitely wouldn't have said it that way in 84, um... You know, I, I, I just wouldn't have described it that way, but there is kind of a sweet to this song, and I guess the evidence of that is that it's been featured in a lot of movies and emotional moments and stuff like that. Um, and this is probably one of the very few songs I feel almost exactly the same way about in 2020 that I did in 1984. I mean, it's a very powerful song. And the lyrics, of course, do contain one of the biggest mistakes in rock history, lyrically, as Bono described... Uh, the timeline of MLK's assassination uh, at the wrong time of day. It's took place in the early evening, not in the morning, which is what the song says. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these days they correct that in concert. They'll, they'll just fix it. It's pretty easy fix. (laughs) Um, There's actually three videos for this song. Um, One of them is a very U2 ish black and white and kind of sort of sepia tone video directed by Donald Campbell. Um, YouTube didn't like I mean, YouTube didn't like it and they did a remake that I, I don't think I've ever even seen uh, by Anton Corbin um, that was uh, that became official I guess it is the one I've seen the black and white CP one they shot another one at Heathrow Airport that's the one I've never seen um, YouTube didn't like that and then the third version of the video the one they showed on MTV uh, at that time um, just feature shots of YouTube recording the unforgettable fire album at ireland's slain castle Mm -hmm. and that's easily my favorite of the videos i've seen a because it was the one that they showed at the time but also b because you can see the passion that builds up in the song um you know especially with bono at the end uh singing the lyrics it appears to be live anyway so outstanding song not even going to sully this one by questioning whether it should have been it here or not because of course it should have been right this actually led me and i still have it um this was the reason why i owned the unforgettable fire album Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) yeah
0: and i still have somehow that one survived all our various moves and all that it's in bad shape though like i think this song sounds good and the rest of the album is like scratched up so (laughs) but but yeah this is uh definitely one of my favorite songs in the 80s without a doubt
1: yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite U2 songs. So, yeah. That's, what is you your favorite U2 song? I, I, I mean, maybe New Year's Day. Possibly.
0: Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, what was the one where uh, the Edge was in a video and he was like tied up?
1: Oh, that, that was Numb. Numb.
0: No, that's right. I'm being that numb. I thought that that's what you were going to say.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. <laughs>
0: anyway, next up for you, number 12 is All Cried Out by Allison Moyet.
1: Um, she was a former member of the synth duo um, Yazoo, or in the U.S. they were called Yaz because there already was a band called Yazoo. And she was in that, that band with um, Vince Clark from Depeche Mode and Erasure. And they are pretty successful in the UK, but didn't make an impact at all here in the States. And um, this was um, one of her first solo singles. It was off of her first solo album. And she was teamed up with the production duo Jolly and Swain, um, who had also um, produced Spand Out Ballet's True Album and um, Bananarama. So she was kind of moving more... Towards the pop direction with this one, but um, she has a pretty deep voice for a woman, and honestly, it's pretty similar to George Michael or Boy George's voice. And maybe I'm just making those comp- comparisons because I mean, could very easily just pass for a Wham! or a Culture Club single. And um, should this have been a hit in the U.S.? Um, yeah, it definitely should. It's kind of baffling to me that. It wasn't a hit here. So. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> the podcast group comes to a screeching halt as my brain stops functioning.
1: Okay. Okay. But number 11 for you, we have Bronsky beat with Why?
0: This is my last skip. Um, I have no idea whether this would have been a hit in America or not. I just know that our father's former wife, like Dabrowski beats, so that means I probably I irrationally don't like them.
1: <laughs> right, yeah.
0: <laughs> that would lead us to number 10, Missing You by John Wayne.
1: I'm sure everyone out there has heard this song hundreds of times over the years. Nope. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this one's kind of a fluke because... Unlike every other John Waite, Babies, or Bad English song that I've heard, I actually um, like this one. It's actually kind of good. Um, the song's about long distance relationship, and it's somewhat autobiographical. Um, Waite was in the U.S. recording this album, and his wife was back in the U.K. Um, in the verses, he's kind of talking about how he how desperate he is to get in touch with her. Uh, but in the choruses, he's just belting out that he ain't missing her, um, even though it's a total lie. And wait, more or less improvised the lyrics for this, like on the spot. Um, basically, just started out with the first line and then just more or less just kept the the mic, just kept the tape rolling as he went through it. So um, pretty impressive for that, but. Um, There's also like cool jangly guitar in the verses, and I remember reading a review years ago where somebody kind of compared it to television, and it is sort of similar to that. I I mean, it's like the soft rock version of that. What? Yeah, I'm I'm serious. Yeah, clearly you're serious. (laughs) Go on. But, but yeah, and I mean. For the video for this, it, I mean, it was the first time I'd seen the video for the year, er, for this in years. And for some reason, I thought the entire video was just him walking down the street in Manhattan. But it really only does that in the choruses. The rest of it, it, he's literally like acting out the lyrics, which I didn't remember at all. But one thing I did remember is that at the time, I thought that his rat tail and like his earring were really weird. But, um, should this have been a hit in the U.S.? Um, well, it was. It was a number one hit in the U.S. And yeah, definitely should have been a hit.
0: I think you're high on the hashish because I don't get anything you just said about this song. Really? Well, <laughs> how dare you sully the babies? Which get back on my feet again, you son of a bitch. But um, I don't know. I don't. I've never once heard this song. Like, yeah, this is sort of. I guess if you hear a certain way like television never. Hmm. Just never never did that for me so I'm not saying you're wrong I'm just I, 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 I'm actually curious to go listen to it and see if I can hear the same thing I, I mean it's it's
1: basically just the guitar that sounds like yeah, that no,
0: I, I understand I just never once thought of it that way and I did just hear it too because it was also on the US chart at this point and of course I heard that countdown over the weekend so um, yeah, I don't know, I didn't care for this song at the time, and I can see where you could like, compared to, like, the other stuff that John Wayne put out, it's probably better, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Everybody, opinions are like assholes, everybody's got one. Okay. Uh, well, i you know, I'm saying that about myself. Okay. I'm not saying I'm right either, I'm just... Right. Next time I see you, we're going to get a brawl about missing you. that's us <laughs> in. <That's bro-man>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but anyway, number nine for you is uh, Paul Young with I'm Gonna Tear Your play- Playhouse Down.
0: This actually starts very promising. It actually sounds a little like P-Funk, believe it or not. He's in that kind of mode with the synths anyway. Uh, but then Paul Young opens his mouth and a oh, man or funk pretty much escapes the room. That's that's, that's a little mean, I mean, but when they started with the Art of Noise style sound effects, well, it was 1984, so the thing I never would have guessed, because I've seen the song title before, and I was like, that's just a weird song title, sounds like something that a Britpop guy would come up with, but they didn't, because this is a cover of an Ann Peebles song from 1972, Hmm. which I had no idea and her version is cool, like most of Man People's songs are. I mean, it's kind of high records, which she recorded for something think Al Green, as crossed with stories. It's kind of funky. Hmm. So, Paul Young's version is cool if you're kind of in that mid 80s music that didn't date itself too well beyond this era. I mean, if you like that era of dance music, this is pretty good. You know, if you don't, it's definitely not going to be your cup of tea. And,. If you want to, there's a nine minute twenty one second mix of this song. If you want to OD on some UK,
1: oh god! Music. Should
0: this have been a hit over here? I mean, I've heard worse. I, I can definitely say Anne People's version should have been a hit in 1972. It's mm-hmm. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 what it is, honestly, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> Next up for you, number eight is Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. I
1: had this in our previous 1984 episode, so I'm just gonna say this right here. Gozer the Traveler, who'll come in one of pre- one of the pre-chosen forms. During the rectification of the Voldrini, the traveler came as a large and moving Torg. Then during the third reconciliation of the last Maquetric supplicants, they chose a new form from that of a giant slore. Many sloops at Zool's knew what it meant to be roasted in the depths of the slur that day, I can tell you. (laughs) That's really all that needs to be said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But should this have been a hit? Well, I mean, obviously this was a hit in the U.S., but should this have been a hit? To be honest, no. It sucks.
0: (laughs) Huey Lewis doesn't think it deserved to be a hit.
1: That 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 is true. Yep. Yeah. He he sued them for ripping off. I want a new drug.
0: So. Yep. yeah. Yeah. This song hasn't aged well. I guess that's the kind of way to put it. Although it did inspire one of the best Key and Peele sketches ever. What have you ever seen the one where Key is uh, doing Ray Parker Jr. like doing like a like one of those music uh, like time life type things where. He's doing basically Ghostbusters versions of other movies.
1: Uh no, no, I haven't seen that one. Oh my
0: god, you need to go find that like the minute we get off this podcast. It's hilarious. Okay, okay. Never did. I mean, um, so I'm not even going to give away what movies he does because that's part of what makes it funny. Okay, okay. But that is some awesomeness, right? But
1: number seven actually,
0: for you it actually might have been Peele.
1: Oh, okay, okay. I think it might have been Jordan Peele who did it, actually. Okay, all right. But number seven for you, we have the Style Council with Shout to the Top.
0: Well, unlike the Stranglers, who switched genres within the framework of their band, Paul Weller, who was the creative force behind the jam, wanted to start over when he started to change his sound in the 80s. Now, the last couple of jam records uh, were quite a ways away from like in, in the city style aggro that he was putting out in the late seventies, but, but Weller wanted a new vehicle. That new vehicle became style council. Um, and Weller was, you know, to be honest, one of the pioneers of pop in a way, because, um, he stepped, he was in the Philly soul wing of pop. That's where this song is mm-hmm. uh, kind of an eighties spin on seventies Philly soul. And it basically works. I mean, And the video is interesting because in it, he has paintings of the then ongoing UK minor strike in the background of his, of what's a live, basically a live performance of the song. Um, And that was still going on at that 1984. It's one of the most contentious uh, events in the UK in the the 80s. And, uh, you know, to this day, that strike has some serious resonance in parts of England, especially South Yorkshire and, and Nottinghamshire, where where the mine workers ended up on opposite sides of the dispute. A lot of people think the Nottingham workers were scabs, basically. So mm-hmm. uh, so, so, that would have never been picked up by audiences here. Uh, because, I mean, I can remember hearing about that miner strike in the news once in a blue moon, but it wasn't on the tip of anybody's tongue in America in 84. Uh, so it's... And, and, and unless you read about this, you would never even guess... Uh, that that's what Paul Weller uh, was trying to get across in the background of the video. I mean, unless you're English. So uh, should this have been a hit in America? Yeah, I think it probably should have been. It's a pretty good song.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: So anyway, number six for you is Drive by the Cars.
1: A big ballad, which is kind of an anomaly for the Cars. Um, none of their previous singles were ballads. Um Actually, none of them really came close to Ballad Territory, but, you know, there were like five albums into their career at this point, so they are due. Um, This was written by Rick Ocasek and sung by Ben Orr. Um, Ben Orr sang a lot of their hits in the early days, like mostly on their first album, but he was back doing that again, and Ocasek did like write pretty much all their songs, so this was, wasn't like out of the ordinary, but um, it was memorably used in the live aid broadcast about a year after this, uh, when it was played over a montage of Ethiopian famine victims, most of uh, which were infants, and probably wasn't what Rick Ocasek had in mind when he wrote the song, but um, probably did get quite a few people to call in and donate. It's I went and watched it, and it's still pretty powerful 35 years later. And because of that, the song re-entered the British charts, and um, the Cars donated the royalties from that run on the charts to Live Aid. But the actual video for this was directed by the actor Timothy Hutton. Um, He was neighbors with the Cars manager, and um, one day he just happened to be, like, talking to um, his neighbor, the manager, and said that was telling him how much he loved this song and that he had ideas for a video, um, if they ever made one. So the manager just said, okay, go ahead. And half of it's like Ben or singing in an abandoned bar. The other half is, uh, Rico Kasich and the model Paulina Poroskova together in an apartment. And she's having a nervous breakdown. Um, Great ideas, Tim. <laughs> but it is notable, I guess, because that was where Rick Kasich and Paulina Poroskova first met, and they later ended up getting married. But I, I seem to remember this one being a much bigger hit on the radio than it was on MTV. I don't really remember seeing the video that much. I, I
0: the, the video was on quite.
1: That. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember that. But it's, um, but it
0: was... We're so going to the bathroom every single time they played this video. That's probably why you never saw it. It
1: could have been. Could have been. Yeah, that that might have actually been what happened. <laughs> it's, um, it was briefly banned in the UK after Princess Di got killed, believe it or not. Um, kind of like, <laughs> like the the thing that happened after 9-11 where they... like banned like a whole list of songs i'm assuming just because who's gonna drive you home oh you know can't have that on there <laughs> so, yeah totally. but i mean obviously this was a big hit in the u.s so um yeah it, it should have been it's decent ballad i guess
0: you know it's funny you say first of all timothy hutton i gotta say turf 182 um,
1: yes, yes been Ziver, knew and flew and who knew I think, yes
0: <laughs> I, I was listening, this was on the 84 countdown I was listening to over the weekend and I don't, the thing that struck me is something you didn't mention, I, I just thought lyrically this song was weak I, I don't
1: know, and that was my impression of it, I never, yeah that's true Yeah,
0: I was like listening to this and I was like, this is something that people think is deep but it's really not that deep at all Honestly, and I like pretty
1: movie.
0: much. Not yeah. that I don't, but I'm yeah, like, eh, I'd do it without it,
1: right? See, but number five for you, we have um, Giorgio Moroder again with um, Philip Oakley uh, together in Electric Dreams.
0: This is the theme from a near-forgotten '80s movie, and let's just say. Uh, that this isn't The Chase, which is Georgie Horrutter's <laughs> probably much more famous theme to a movie with Midnight Express. But, you know, it's funny, though. I, I, I always write out what I'm... I basically have an idea of what I'm going to say and I write it out. And it's funny because I started off kind of slagging the song a mm-hmm. little bit. And then I kept it on in the background while I was researching. Um, because the next song I have that I don't want to give away is so horrible I didn't even want to hear it. So I actually kept it on. And this song really grew on me the more I listened to it for some reason. So it's funny, like, when I, my original um, thoughts were pretty negative, like my first impression, but then it kind of grew on me a little bit. Um, this doesn't sound like Marauder from like the 70s. This is actually, it sounds quite a bit like the intro to All I Need Is a Miracle. Like, the, the melody of the song is like that, which isn't a bad thing, as I like that song, but. You know, moroder was known as, as an innovator. That's how he became big. This isn't really that innovator. Um, you know, it's more like kind of cruising on his laurels, I guess, in terms of Giorgio moroder Oakley sings on it. Um, and and his singing kind of grew on me as it, as it went along, too. So, But the funny thing is the movie itself, uh, Electric Dreams, uh, has kind of been forgotten about for a good reason, because it's about a computer that becomes sentient and falls in love with both its owner and the hot female apartment mate that he has a crush on. Oh, so God. This is like three-way love triangle type thing, and the computer was voiced by Bud Cort. Um, <laughs> I don't know how the computer expresses his love, um, but its I, I bet it's pretty funny. It is. In, the movie is in its entirety on YouTube. I wasn't about to, to watch it. Though I did skip to the part where the computer commits suicide. (laughs) Right now. So get ready for this little treat. We're going to do a movie clip from Electric Dreams. Here we go. Okay. The computer is committing suicide. Electric part of me has died. (laughs) voice. <laughs>
1: Okay.
0: okay. This is on video, or on audio, because what I'm watching right now is a computer exploding as it committed suicide.
1: Okay. It's
0: actually like lawnmower, man. He sent like a power search through like the whole grid, uh-huh. and it comes back to him all at once, and so the computer literally explodes.
1: Oh, God.
0: In San Francisco.
1: Let's see, um, well... Uh, since it was Bud Korn, I mean, he kind of like cornered the market on like weird love stories that are like framed around suicide. Yeah, that
0: was Bud <laughs> Korn. I always think the computer there, the actor, computer. So should this have been a hit in America? I actually do recall this being played on MTV a little bit. It wasn't in heavy rotation. Um, and this is going to sound really wonky, but this actually sounds more like 1985 than 84 in terms of the The direction of the music, I don't know if you know what I mean by that. but I do, um,
1: yeah. So, in a
0: way, it was a little bit ahead of the curve, but not that far ahead of the curve. So I guess you could forget what I said about Moroder earlier, kind of cruising on his laurels, although it's not so far ahead like he was in the 70s. Um, You know, there's worse stuff from 84 that was a hit, so I think this would have been a hit. It it grows on you. And actually watching the the movie... (laughs) see the movie's still running in the background and there's like this montage of people falling in love in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You should go check. You uh, should probably go check out electric dreams.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: So, but I, yeah, I kind of ended up digging this song in the final balance. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I, I like this one too, actually. So. I like songs where computers commit suicide. <laughs> actually, the song is used. Um, Virginia Madsen is the female character in it, and it's in typical '80s fashion. They they lived in San Francisco, and you know they play this song, which is an up tempo, you know, an upbeat song, and they fall in love together. They're driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, and you know, basically ends like an '80s video. So very of its time, very dated.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it.
0: And, and also in the way it's shot, too. It has all those sharp '80s shadows and all that, like really kind of severe color shadows, you know, not like noir shadows, but like, like really severe lip scenes and all that. So yeah, it has that going for it as well. <laughs> yeah. But yet another move, uh, song from a movie, number four, No More Lonely Nights. For some reason it's valid. It's in parentheses by Paul McCartney.
1: Yeah, this was from the soundtrack of Give My A Ah, Give my regards to Broad Street, uh, which was Paul's comeback to the silver screen, um, his first attempt at acting since the Magical Mystery Tour. Um, Not that anybody was actually acting in the Magical Mystery Tour, but Paul also wrote the movie, and the movie is a total mess if you've ever seen it. Um,
0: I've actually never seen it.
1: Really? I I mean, it it was on HBO in the 80s, I know that. Maybe I just caught it, like, the one week it was on or whatever.
0: There were times where I was going to the bathroom.
1: Yeah, yeah, it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, basically, the story is, Paul finishes an album, um, the master tapes go missing, um, he suspects a shady employee grabbed it so he could bootleg it, and there's dire consequences if they miss the deadline for getting the album in. But it, it turns out to just be a like, a misunderstanding. And the big twist at the end is that Paul was dreaming the entire thing, which is, like, a total 80s thing. I don't know if this, like, I'm assuming this came out before, like, Dallas did the same thing.
0: Yeah, it (laughs) would have. And it's also kind of a Paul McCartney thing. Like, oh, how whimsical it is for me to a movie that's based on a
1: dream. Right, yeah, exactly. And since we're mentioning Paul McCartney acting, I'd I'd have to mention that he was by far the worst out of the Beatles at acting, just based on, like, A Hard Day's Night and Help. Because, I mean, John was pretty good and Ringo and George had at least discerning personalities. Paul was just Paul. I mean, he wasn't really doing anything.
0: In some ways, Ringo was sort of the star of our days night i mean a lot of the plot is based around him i don't know i think paul mccartney though had the whole thing going with his grandpa and all that in our days night so um,
1: yeah that's true that's true but anyway um going back to the song um song's been more or less like completely forgotten I, i mean i can't remember the last time i heard this on the radio which is kind of a shame because it's pretty decent for a um solo McCartney track from the 80s and out, out of all the songs on my list I'd say that this one has aged the best partly because um, Paul just didn't go for what was trendy I mean um, the synths on this are pretty subdued um, no horns doesn't have like the typical 80s drum sound I mean it sounds I mean pretty timeless I mean I guess it would yeah. be the best, best way to describe it <laughs>
0: thing that does tie it to its era is the tone of the guitar in that song i don't know i'm not technically smart enough to describe what it actually is or what kind of guitar was used or what speaker they played it through but the tone of the guitar from no more lonely nights is of its time but um you know that doesn't necessarily deviate from what you're saying in the respect that uh you're right that it doesn't have a lot of it really doesn't have any other 80s, any other eighties tropes, so right. And and did you know who actually played the guitar
1: solo on hit on here?
0: Um, did Mick Taylor play on it?
1: No, no. It was from a classic rock band.
0: Um, C. C. DeVille from Poison. No,
1: no, no. <laughs> I don't know who it was. Oh,
0: um, Dave, Dave
1: Gilmore. Yeah, it was Dave Gilmore. Yeah, That's
0: right. Dave Gilmore You know, now I feel like an idiot. That basically is his trademark tone.
1: Yeah, and in in the video, when he's like doing the guitar solo, they have like even like the British style ring tone that they used like a lot on the Wall album. It's like not on the actual song, but it's in the video, so. But
0: but a lot of other bands use that same tone, and it's definitely of its period. I mean, you know, really, Gilmore kind of stuck with that tone through his solo career and stuff, but so i don't know i don't i'd have to read up on dave gilmore to know how he created that sound
1: right yeah yeah or
0: what kind of guitar he was using or whatever i just don't know enough about guitars
1: right yep but this was a hit in the u.s and it definitely should have been so
0: yeah yeah it has a density to it that kind of like some of the casey and the sunshine band disco songs had in the 70s and i think that's because of gilmore's guitar
1: Yeah, 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 you are right about that. So. See, but number three for you, we have Culture Club with the war song.
0: Um, Let me read some stuff of wisdom here. (laughs) War, war is stupid, and people are stupid. (laughs) This is a pretty bad song. And the album it came from, uh, Waking Up With The House On Fire, was a troubled Project for Culture Club because um, they admitted it was rushed. I mean, they were basically trying to keep the train flowing from their you know early '80s heyday, which they they probably rushed it. And by this point, Boy George was probably really starting to have some pretty heavy duty uh, drug issues, which dogged him through the rest of the '80s. So um, did this, this this was a hit in America too. Uh, Did it deserve to be? Hell no. It's like easily the worst Culture Club song ever recorded.
1: Yeah, I I totally forgot about this one until I went back and listened to it this week. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, that one. I remember (laughs) I
0: was like, because I sort of a little bit turned the corner on Culture Club, because, I mean, you know, being like 13 years old, you know, the whole imagery of Culture Club for an 80s teenager was not, you know, there are people who are accepting of it, and I'm not saying I wasn't accepting, but, you know, that would have intimidated somebody who was my age, you know, a man dressing like a woman and all that. And But I kind of turned the corner because I really loved uh, Church of the Poison Mind.
1: Yeah, that's a good song. That
0: song. That's still my favorite Culture Club song. And I was like, all right, maybe they're not that bad. And then this came out. I was like, okay, they're shit.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) You know, since then I've learned to really enjoy some of their other songs, but not this one. This one's really bad. Right, yeah, yep. So, next up for you, number two, is... I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder.
1: I just called to phone this song
0: in. (laughs) Whoa, that's harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, Another movie song... um, The fifth for me this week, Um, this was from the Gene Wilder-Kelly LeBrock comedy, The Woman in Red, which is almost as bad as the song. Um, Well, like I said, I mean, it sounds like Stevie's phoning it in. Um, He's singing over what sounds like a pre-programmed Casio keyboard beat. And the gist of it is that he's calling her up because it's um, not, not because it's a special occasion... But just to say that he loves her and he's basically just like listing off holidays and the, in the song, like no new year's day, no Christmas day, no Halloween. I, I mean, I'm, I'm shocked that he didn't like throw Arbor day or like flag day in there. I mean, clearly just making it up. And I mean, it's crap. I mean, it's really obviously crap, but Stevie put out 20 years worth of, uh, quality material before this. So I guess we could let it slide, but this was a massive hit, um the biggest hit of his career actually. And not only that, but it was the biggest selling Motown single in British history, and it won a Golden Globe and an Oscar. So <laughs>
0: um, Yeah. This was actually number 1 in America this week cuz I was listening in the 84 countdown and they're like, it's a song from a movie and I I was like trying to guess I was like, well no, they've already done Let's Go Crazy by Prince. Um, I was trying to think what the hell was out in eighty four at this point. They're like Stevie Wonder, and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I just called to say I love you. Yeah. I, I agree. You're right. I mean it's pretty uninspired Stevie without a doubt. Um I think it's funny, like the top three movie songs uh in this chart are all from movies that are all more or less forgotten, really. Yeah. You're talking electric dreams uh in my regards to broad street and woman in red yeah i don't think many people are watching that like netflix isn't getting a bunch of hits off of any of those movies so <laughs>
1: yeah yeah kind
0: of interesting
1: but see and i mean obviously this was a number one hit in the u.s but should it have been no so yeah. <laughs>
0: it's it, It was definitely a downer to hear this last on the countdown last week.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I bet. But we're at number one here. We are. Here we go. Go. Uh, Wham! with Freedom.
0: In the deepest recesses of my soul in 1985, when this was released in America, almost a year after this was in, in the U.K., I sort of had to hide the fact that I really liked this song a lot. Um, it wasn't like Culture Club. It wasn't cool for teenage guys to like Wham! And their first song in America was Wake Me Up Before You go go which, as you mentioned, went to number one. And that wasn't like, I mean, that was a very easy song to, it was a big hit for Wham!, but it was also sort of a curse, too, because it was almost so wholesome and, almost bubblegumish that have made Wham very easy to be made fun of. When he added the imagery of the video, which was, by our standards, way flamboyant and over-the-top for, you know, 1984 American tastes, that didn't help. Um, but I've kind of changed my mind on Wham over the years. To me, they're like, ABBA is to the 70s, it is Wham is to the 80s. I sort of dig them now. Yeah. And by this point, 1984 in the UK, they were the kings of UK pop without doubt, um, and they were their hits. They had several hits several years before they broke in America, but the hits that we know in America were basically rolling down the assembly line, maybe six to nine months before they hit here. So, so freedom um, for us is associated with '85, but obviously we're in '84 here in the UK. Mm-hmm. It, unusually for the 80s and maybe uniquely for the 80s um, if you think of the sound sound of this song it's actually in mono oh really there you go huh. and i never even thought of that and then i read that and i went back and listen to it i was like oh yeah okay there, there is a it, it's in mono so this may be the very it has to be the only hit in the 80s that was done in mono so that's interesting um by the time this was released in America in the summer of 85, uh, Wham was on its last legs as a group. Basically, they barely existed as a group at that point. But they stuck around long enough to do uh, a 10-day stay in China. They were the first uh, rock or pop group of any kind to tour that country from a uh, from a Western nation. Um, and that's what... And remember, you know, we're only 10 years or so after the death of Mao and, the, and you know even less time than that separated from the gang of four and all that stuff from the late seventies that you, you probably don't remember that I sort of do, but right. uh, You know, so, um, and that was what the basis of the video released here was, it was basically footage of their tour of China. So, um, but I really liked this song actually, uh, when it was out, I kind of hid that fact, but, um, did this deserve to be a hit in America? Absolutely, it, it, it's a good song.
1: Yeah, it's a great song actually. I
0: yeah, I, it may be my favorite Ram song. Honestly,
1: yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that too.
0: Yeah, I, I've learned to really like uh, all that she wants, or not all that she wants. That's fucking Ace of Base. Um, the um, Every,
1: everything she wants, I think. Everything she wants, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one too. <clears throat>
0: So, but I wouldn't have appreciated that at the time because uh, that song's kind of funky. But right. So to get back to the theme of this whole thing, was the UK nineteen eighty four experience, at least in October of eighty four, better, or was the US in October eighty four experience better? There's a few repeats between the two charts, uh, but I have to say, USA, USA.
1: I, I'd agree with you there. Yeah.
0: These are some of the songs that were on the top 40 in the USA this week that weren't on this chart. All Through the Night by Cindy Lauper, Out of Touch by Holland Oaks, Strut by Sheena Easton, Better Be Good to Me by Tina Turner, Go Insane by Lindsey Buckingham, Cruel Summer by Banana Rama, which was probably a in the UK before it was in America. Yeah. I'm so excited by The Pointer Sisters, Shebop, also by Cindy Lauper, Glamorous Life by Sheila E, Caribbean Queen by Billy Ocean, and Let's Go Crazy by Prince. So those are all songs that were on the top 40 this week yeah america.
1: u.s definitely wins there in,
0: in addition to the ones we the repeats that we had on this chart so salute the flag and if you don't love america go leave it trump 2020 your feelings and no more <laughs> bullshit yeah yeah maybe so but the, not that the british chart was bad i mean it's it, as we chronicled it's pretty good but um hard to beat an american chart from 84
1: right yeah exactly yeah
0: so what's on the docket for next week
1: well we're staying in the commonwealth but we're going to a different continent
0: oh all
1: right uh, we're going to australia oh snap the uh, ghost the go set magazine national top 40 from october 23rd 1971
0: October twenty third of nineteen seventy one. Okay,
1: yep. And there is some crossover from like U.S. artists on here, but there are some. Um, well, actually, there's one song on there that is like a major part of Australian pop culture, and it's actually one of your songs. So you'll you'll have to figure out which one that is.
0: I think I already know which one it is, but that's okay. So
1: <laughs> okay, okay. See, but does
0: this mean we're going to get to make a bunch of Australian rules football references?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah.
0: Can I, can I make Jacko references?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> he, he, Jacko wasn't playing Australian rules football then, but did, you you know he was an Australian rules football player, right?
0: Uh, no, but it makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I just knew him as the guy who hawked batteries.
1: yes Yep.
0: energizer
1: oi (laughs) oi
0: that's annoying. oi I guess we should get all of our Australianisms out of them
1: right well I mean since it's 1971 we should probably just reference Wake and Fright if you've ever seen that
0: um I don't think I have
1: It, it, it is awesome it's like almost a horror movie based around Australian drinking culture okay it's basically a guy stuck in a town. He gets, like, force-fed foster and they go out and, like, box kangaroos for real and stuff like that. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: That
0: sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, kangaroo would absolutely kill me if I tried to box
1: it. Probably. And that's kind of what happens in the movie, too. <laughs> yeah, kangaroo would
0: fuck me up like bigger than life. Like, right. Literally, like,
1: literally
0: kill. me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what zoo animals I could be in a boxing match. Probably not very many.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can't think of many.
0: <laughs> I bet I could kick a turtle's ass.
1: <laughs> yeah, just have to tip it over or something. I should just go,
0: you know, it's free to go to the St. Louis Zoo, which is the closest good zoo that we're to. Yeah. I should just go over there and punch a penguin and see what happens. <laughs>
1: yeah
0: yeah i think i'd I'd collectively get my ass kicked because there's a shitload of penguins in there
1: yeah probably yeah
0: there's a lot and at the st louis zoo you can like walk amongst them that's what's cool
1: oh that 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 is cool
0: huh well sort of i mean and they
1: smell really bad yeah I, i bet they do i mean they eat a lot of fish so yeah so
0: anyway (laughs) next week we'll see what happens when i go to the zoo and punch animals
1: yes yes
0: (laughs) all right well thanks everybody for listening we'll be in australia next week yep Oz.
1: yep yep see you down under everybody
0: (laughs) all right
1: are you coming in are you gonna piss about all day you're bloody finished you know that jack i'm bloody finished you